Wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Aswath Damodaran, who is a professor at NYU, the Stern School in Finance and probably also Accounting. He is the author of this book right here, Narrative and Numbers, The Value of Stories in Business. But he's also the author of, I found a couple of us rummaging around in my bookshelves. I found a couple more. I mean, I know there's a few more buried underneath the piles of books down deep, but there's this one here, the Wharton book, Strategic uh, Risk-Taking, a framework for risk management. And then this one, which is like the, uh, this is the Bible. This is the 21st century Graham and Dodd, Demodoron on, on valuation. Welcome, Maswath. I'm glad to be here. You know, in this book right here, we've got the quants. We treat them as being in these two different buckets. And I think essentially a testament to maybe an idea that we should kind of get rid of these distinctions or at least have them learn from each other. And you tell a personal story about how, you know, you found yourself very early on assigned to one of these tribes. And and then, you know, only later in life did you realize that there were these other capabilities that you had, which were, you know, latent and which you had to really consciously cultivate. Could you tell us a bit about that whole, that narrative, that story and how you came to it? Yeah, the truth is I'm not an exception. I think we've all gone through this process. In fifth, sixth, seventh grade, we go to algebra class and the teacher says, you're amazing at this class. And then we walk over to the history class and the instructor says, you're not very good at this. And we kind of reinforce that. And we work on the things that we're good at. We get better at them and we avoid the things we're bad at. And the 20th century was a century of specialists. Increasingly, people were pushed to specialize, to learn more about their discipline. So we're encouraged to strengthen our strengths and avoid our weaknesses. And I did the same thing that everybody else in my generation, my next generation did, which is to focus on my strengths. I was an accounting slash econ major. As an undergraduate, I came and got an MBA and PhD in finance, very much a number crunching discipline. And then I became a teacher. I consider myself a teacher. I'm not a professor. I'm not an academic. I'm a teacher. And I discovered very early on that to teach, you got to tell stories. People don't remember. Numbers come and go. They don't stick. Stories stick. So part of this was learning to become a better teacher, telling stories. The other part is the discipline that I teach is valuation. Now we think of valuations as numbers in a spreadsheet, but ultimately valuations tell a story. And I discovered that without being able to tell a story, all I had were a collection of numbers in a spreadsheet. The other half that forced me to think about how can I become a better storyteller was the need to be able to tell stories that backed up my valuations. So in both fronts, both the teaching front and what I was teaching valuation, I was kind of forced to deal with the fact that storytelling was my weaker link. And the nice thing is you can learn to tell stories. And that's what I've discovered over my lifetime. And even if you start off not as a very good storyteller, you can end up as a pretty decent storyteller, maybe not a great storyteller. Well, I think you shortchange yourself somewhat. I think you're telling stories all along. Maybe you weren't kind of explicit about the the way in which you were doing it, but certainly in all the books, there are plenty of stories. And as you recount in your book, students would come up to you decades later and, and say, I remember this story and I remember that story. And, and this has happened to me uh, on a couple of occasions where I'll run into a, a student and they'll remind me of stories I don't even remember having told, but that seems to be what sticks. So now that you're more conscious about it, how have you learned the science of storytelling because of course you're going to take a scientific approach to it the key word is conscious of it you're right that's what i've become i've become more conscious of my storytelling 
which means I can work better at the craft of storytelling. Because like everything else, there's a craft to storytelling. If you go back and look at the stories that have been told over time, I think it was Joseph Campbell who said you can take every story that's ever been told. And basically, it's a spin on one of seven stories told and retold in different ways. But to me, one of the things that helped me best in learning the craft of storytelling was something I found that was internally floating around Pixar. It, you can find it on Google, for instance, if you search for it. It's a document that Pixar put together to teach people at Pixar how to tell more effective stories. And for them, it's life and death, because if you're a movie maker and your stories don't stick, you're not going to survive as a movie maker. And Pixar is a masterful storyteller. I mean, you look at you know all the great Pixar movies, and you can think of the Toy Story movies. My One of my favorite movies is Up. These are movies that you can watch with your kids, but you can watch as an adult and still enjoy them because you can connect to that story. And what this document did was go through how stories get told and what you can introduce into stories to make them more memorable, to connect them. And I learned more from that Pixar book than I did from any valuation <laughs> book I've read about how to tell better valuation stories. Now, I think that a lot of people in today's era would say, hey, Aswath, you're going the wrong way. You know, you even quote Moneyball in your book. And, you know, the story of Moneyball, of course, is the triumph of data over stories, right? Where these, these scouts, qualitative assessors, you know, will tell stories like, that guy's got an ugly girlfriend, so he obviously can't play baseball. And Billy Bean says, well, you know, show me the data that supports that. You know, a lot of psychologists, behavioral economists and so forth would say that you know, stories are a dangerous thing. They have a way of, of getting inside of you and distracting you from reality and distracting you from data. In fact, even people talk about, oh, that's a story stock, meaning it's a stock that has no real value behind it. I think underlying that critique is this belief that data is somehow facts and stories reveal bias. I've worked with data enough to know how I can bend the data to tell whatever story I want to tell. If you think you cannot hide bias because you use data, you're barking up the wrong tree. Right now, I'm actually writing a post on corporate taxes. One of the things I do every year on my website is I update data for every publicly traded company. And one of the data items I report on is the tax rates paid by companies in different sectors, different parts of the world. It is one of the more widely used data sets on my website. People download it. But the strange thing is they download the same data set and there are two opposite sides of an argument. They both quote my data, but they quote different data items. So as an example, pharmaceutical companies, if you look at, I report four different tax rates for pharmaceutical companies. One is a simple average tax rate. It's about three and a half percent. Why is it so low? Because in 2020, a lot of pharmaceutical companies lost money. So if you take the simple average, because those companies pay no taxes, the tax rate is three and a half percent. If you look at the cash taxes paid by pharmaceutical companies, in the aggregate, you get about 30%. So which is the right tax rate? Three and a half or 30 depends on your agenda. If you want to show me that pharma companies don't pay taxes, you quote the three and a half percent. It is a fact. You say, look, the data backs me up. If you believe they're paying too much in taxes, you quote the 30 percent, say that's the data. It backs me up. I have a very healthy respect for data, but I've also seen how data can mislead. So, you know, you can use statistics to make those lies even bigger. You can use data to advance any agenda you want. Now, I love Moneyball. 
but there should be a Moneyball 2. You know what you need in Moneyball 2? When everybody has the data, does anybody have the data? It's a problem we're running into now. When Moneyball came out, Billy Bean was the only baseball manager using data. He had an advantage. Today, every single baseball team uses the same data. Guess what? The advantage is gone. The problem with data-based investing, and this is why I don't think big data or artificial intelligence is rescue active investors, is anything that is mechanical, and data is mechanical, a machine can do it better than any human being can. And once a machine can do it better, you're one ETF away from being wiped out as an active investor. So I respect data. I, I work with data all the time, but I also realize how easy it is to bend data to reflect your biases. And I actually think stories are a great way to make sure you're not bending the data. That's why you need both. Mm -hmm. Just telling stories, you can go off on these fantasy land rides, make up stuff. Just using data, you can bend the numbers to do whatever you want. But once, once you connect data to numbers, each side actually acts as a constraint on the other side. So I actually think you need to tell stories, but you need to use the data to temper your stories. In fact, one of the key parts of the book is the section where I ask what I call my three P questions. Is it possible? Is it plausible? Is it probable? That's where data meets story. You can tell, tell me a fairy tale, but once I started asking those questions with the data, I very quickly realized this story is going nowhere at least as an investment story. So connecting data to narratives is a way of keeping yourself in check from telling stories that really don't fly or using data piecemeal and backing up things that whatever you wanted to do. So you're really advocating kind of a triangulating your way towards a closer view of the truth through these different storytelling architectures, one that's more kind of uh, narrative and, and word driven, one that's more, more data driven. I think in law school, I remembered that, that most of the work was done by the time you were finished articulating the facts, right? So you right. get two briefs from two different parties and you know, they, you hadn't even gotten into the argument section, but by the time you're done with the facts section, and even though both sides more or less had the same, you know, there wasn't any, anything false in there, you know, as a lawyer, you can't put anything right. false in the facts section, but by the time you're done articulating the facts, you've already come to a conclusion. And great lawyers not only articulate the facts, they sequence them the right mm -hmm. way because we get the wrong fact in first and the right fact in later, then it might not have the same resonance. Part of being a great lawyer, and this is, I think, a great way of thinking about the analogy, is you might have a bunch of facts. If you just get up there and say fact one, fact two, fact three, fact four, by the time you get to fact 35, your jury is completely lost and you, they have no idea why you're bringing up these facts. Your job as a lawyer is to take those facts, create a narrative where those facts, in a sense, fit into your narrative. And of course, as a, as a lawyer, you have a job to represent your client. You're trying to take the same facts that the other side has, but present the facts in a narrative that you mm -hmm. think is more credible to the jury than the other side's reading of those same facts. And in a sense, valuations are the same way. Right now, with SEC requirements, neither of us has access to inside information. You look at the financials for Tesla, and I look at the financials for Tesla, we're looking at the same company. But the story we tell with those facts can lead us to very different valuations. Right. And I think that what's changed, of course, is that we have access to so much more data, as you were saying. And 
And I guess the question is, now that we have so much more data, is, is the data more uh, heuristics and we're more inclined to kind of wade through this data with these kind of more simplistic rules, data that was smaller but better curated? Absolutely. If you want to go out to eat and look, you can look and get, you already realize how much more difficult decision-making has become because of our access to data. 40 years ago, if you wanted to find a good restaurant to eat at, you try to find reviews. Maybe three restaurants were reviewed. You talk to people. Your circle of restaurants to look at was probably six or seven. Today, every restaurant in San Diego potentially could be the restaurant I order at tonight. You're saying, that's good. You have more choice. The choice is a mixed blessing. We're drowning in data. And one of the reasons I tell people to, that stories are critical, stories allow you to search for data with focus. Now, I'll, I'll give you the contrast. We live in the Google search world. You want to value a company. Here's what many of my students do. They type in the name of the company into the Google search box. All is lost the minute you do that. They get 60,000 hits. And the, the top hits are not necessarily the best hit. No one goes Who past page one. <laughs> yeah. So basically what you have is essentially, it's data does not become information until it goes through a processing. We're drowning in data. We're actually not getting information from that data. And one of the reasons I tell stories, it allows me to look for the data that I want at that point in time. So I'll give you an example. When I sit down to value a company, let's say it's a company that I don't know much about. Baidu, the Chinese search engine company, never used it. I have no idea you know, how Chinese use search engines, how they advertise. Now, if I start by saying, I'm going to go look up everything I can find on Baidu, I'm going to drown in data. But if I say, okay, I'm going to take this a step at a time. It's a search engine company. The first thing I'm going to look at is how big are its revenues mm -hmm. relative to other search engine companies. So my first data search is driven by how big is it as a search engine. Next, I want to see how much money it makes. Then I look at the margins and why the Chinese market may be closed. But at each stage, I have a focus, Netherlands, you never mm -hmm. wanted to be in because you basically got distracted multiple times. So I think the access to data is a mixed blessing. We need to have ways of looking for the data that matters and removing the 95% of data that is truly a distraction. It's not information. Yeah, I've, I've heard this phrase, the fish of information gets lost in the, in the sea of data. Now, it seems like people have difficult time keeping kind of alternative stories in mind at the same time, right? That we have a story and and the only way to get rid of that story is to replace it with, with another story. But I think part of your argument is that you need to kind of stress test your stories and you need to, need to try them out. And the reason why I mention this is, you know, I've taught finance for decades and a lot of things about how Wall Street professionals and buy side and sell side folks work has puzzled me. So that, for instance, if you're, if you're looking at a company and, and you see it as a retailer, you apply one multiple. If you look at it as a you know, logistics company, you, you apply a different multiple. And, and if you look at it as a tech company or a software company, you know, you apply this, this other multiple. And from the higher level up, you're like, well, can it be all three? <laughs> right? Like, why do we have these narrative boxes that, that we need right. to fit everything into? Why aren't we more comfortable kind of stress testing them and trying out different stories to see which ones fit? One of my advantages, now it's not that I'm smarter than people on Wall Street on valuation, is I get to look at valuation with elevation. I can lift myself up above the day-to-day -day and kind of look at things. 
I can look at different markets, different asset classes, different companies at different points in time. And the luxury of doing that, because I don't have a 12 o'clock deadline or a nine o'clock deadline where I've got to get a deal done or an equity research report done. Let's face it, the reason people look for boxes is they have things to get done and they really don't have the time for big thinking. They need to get this done and this is the easiest way to get them. No, but you're absolutely right. Often when you tell a story, you get attached to the story. It's human nature. You told the story. It's your story. You like it. Of course, you fall in love with it. And that's why the last step in my narrative and numbers is what I call keeping the feedback loop open, which is don't tell the story and show your valuation to people who think just like you. Because guess what? They're going to all pat you on the back and say, what an amazing job you've done. You're a CFA. You hang out with other CFAs. Or you're an equity research analyst. You hang out with other equity research analysts. You get very little pushback doing what they're doing because that's what they all do. So the first step in the feedback loop is you got to offer your valuation to people who think least you. Maybe not even people who do valuation. And I valued Airbnb last November. After I finished the valuation, I talked to a good friend of mine. He's not in finance. He's a doctor, but he has three apartments he rents through Airbnb. And I took him through my story of Airbnb and why I thought it could grow. And, and he pointed out some things that I'd completely missed about the relationship between hosts and Airbnb and how Airbnb increasingly was shifting how much it was collecting from the host and as opposed to the guest. What it did about expenses that got the lawsuits that come when somebody has a party. These are things I would not have heard if I talked to a bunch of equity research analysts. And that's the part where I think talking to people who think least like you. Yeah, and what I like is this idea of stress testing or doing kind of what we might call sensitivity analysis on a story. Like when we think about sensitivity analysis, we're usually thinking, okay, I've got this spreadsheet with a final output, and then what happens if I tweak this assumption, that assumption? But you're actually advocating something like a stress test the story and, and say, well, what if this What if this counterfactual reasoning when you're reading fiction, you're like, you know, what if the, the heroine in, in the Jane Austen story, you know, didn't meet the guy at, at the party? Right. And I think that's absolutely right, because when you have spreadsheets, you're tempted to play with line items, right? So for instance, you get too low a value. And you know what I mean by too low a value. Most of us, when we sit down to value a company, have a number in our heads that we think we will see at the end. And we're disappointed when the number we get is too low. You get too low a value. Here's what you do. You go and increase the growth rate and the margins. But what you're telling me then mm -hmm. is the story of a company that's able to sell more while raising prices. That strikes me as counterintuitive. If you want to sell more, there are two ways you do it. One is you cut price, in which case your margins go down. So you want to tell me a different story about higher revenue growth and lower margins. I'm willing to listen, but you can't just tweak line items to do whatever you think is right for you that will give you the answer you want. So one of the reasons I tell stories again is it stops me from changing one piece of evaluation and leaving everything else alone because it doesn't work that way. I mean, I'll give you an example. In the book, I value Ferrari. I value it as an exclusive club. And what does it mean? Well, going back 25 years. Not because they cannot sell more, but because if they sold more, they wouldn't be that exclusive anymore. So their revenue growth is going to be constrained because they're an exclusive. They don't want to grow 15, 20% a year. Saying, why do they stop themselves with a 4% growth rate? Because by being an exclusive club, they can charge sky high prices. They don't have to advertise. They have a customer base that's so wealthy that they don't know whether the economy is in a recession or a recovery. 
So I gave them low growth, high margins, super high margins, the 95th percentile of automobile companies, and I value them. One of my students is an auto analyst at a major investment bank. He called me and he said, why don't you give Ferrari the Maserati story? Maserati until 2009 looked a lot like Ferrari. But what Maserati decided to do was go for more growth. And they did it by introducing the Ghibli, a $150,000 Maserati. They got what they wanted. They got 16% growth, but their margins dropped by about half. So basically I said, okay, I can give them the Maserati story. And I did, and I came up with the value lower than what I had originally. And I remember him calling me back saying, why don't you just leave the margins where they were? And I said, that's not the way it works. I can't just give you the piece you want and not adjust the rest of the story to be consistent. So I think that's what stories make allow me to do is when inputs change, I have to think through what it means for the rest of the story. To be good at finance, you have to understand so much more. I remember I taught finance at Duke two decades ago and and some students said, your finance class conflicts with the golf class. Just take the golf class, you know, if you're going <laughs> to be in, you know, in sales. And now if I had to choose between a finance class and a, and a strategy class, I would say, you know, strategy, if you had to choose one, would probably give you more insight than the way a typical finance class is taught. Because the finance class presumes that you already have most of the numbers already filled out in, in the spreadsheet. No, I think it's very difficult to value businesses if you don't understand how to run a business. That's the bottom line, right? If, and the problem is if you're 22 years old and an undergraduate, you've definitely not run a business. And if you're an MBA who used to work in a part of a company, you haven't run a business. You've run one small slice of a business. I think one of the things you have to, you know, even if you never run a business, is you've got to talk to people who run businesses. And my suggestion is talk to people who run small businesses. Simply because every aspect of the business, you know, I talked to the guy who sells hot dogs outside NYU's business school, and he's been there 25 years. I remember talking to him and he bought this expensive stand where he could be inside the stand in winter. It was a game changer for him. And I remember talking about how much it costs and how he raised the money and what he had to worry about in terms of margins when he switched from the hot dogs to the Italian sausages. Things that you don't think matter, but I got insights into, hey, you know, boy, how do you decide on how much inventory to keep? How does it affect value? But I think sometimes we think that listening to CEOs of large companies is how we understand business. I learn more about business from my Uber driver and my hot dog stand vendor than I do from CEOs of companies because it forces you to think about basics, which is, you know, you want to sell more. What do you have to do? You've got to cut prices or you've got to somehow create this special extra that allows you that pricing power. And I think I would push back on is strategy people are just storytelling all the time. They drive me crazy. And they tell stories which are static, which means you're the only smart one in the room. They've forgotten game theory, which is they tell these great strategies where you're moving and you're doing this amazing stuff and the rest of the world just stays where it is. It's not the way the world that I live in behaves. Everything you do creates counter movements. So I think strategy people could learn a lot from game theory when they set out to say give strategy because otherwise they can give strategy advice that makes everybody worse off in a sector, not everybody better off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Game theory has to be part of strategy. You talk about not just storytelling for teachers, but storytelling for practitioners. In other words, if if you are an entrepreneur and you can't 
do storytelling, then you'll probably never attract any good quality employees. You'll probably never attract any good customers. You'll probably never attract any, any investors. And out here in Silicon Valley, the VCs that I know, it's really all about the story and all that, you know, you've got, of course you have the TAM and all this stuff, and that has to be part of the deck and, and you need some numbers there. But since back in 1999, it was all about I've got a business plan with these financial forecasts going out 20 years. And nowadays, if you try to show a financial forecast going out 20 years to a VC, they're just going to laugh at you, right? They're, they're really focused on the story that you're telling. And that's true even for senior executives when they're interacting with the financial markets. So I was wondering if you could talk about the difference between being a good storyteller and having a, a good story because fairy tales. And I think Adam Newman is a mesmerizing storyteller. I think uh, Elizabeth Holmes was, was a mesmerizing storyteller and their stories were completely fabricated. I think that when you tell stories, I think as a, especially the founder VC part of the business, the reason it's all storytelling all the time is VCs play the pricing game. They don't play the value game. All they need to tell us a big is tell a big story get everything priced based on that big story, and then flip it to somebody else while the big story is getting bigger. Think of Lime bikes, so, you know, the shared bikes that showed up all over every city in the country, or scooters that have showed up, bird scooters. This is a horrifically bad business. You can see that it's not a business that can make money. I'm amazed that VCs have thrown money at it. But Those are, by the way, Berkeley founders. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> okay, which makes which actually makes sense. But the problem though is they can flip it to somebody else based on look at how many users we have. And as long as they can do it, why do they care about whether these stories lead to actual businesses? So there are pricing stories they're telling. And as long as the pricing story holds and they can flip it to somebody else while the iron is hot, they can make money on those pricing stories. So I think that when, you know, if you're a founder who actually wants to build a business, not just flip your company to somebody else at a higher price, not only do you have to tell a big story, you also have to have a deliverable story. Now, a story that doesn't overreach because guess who's responsible for delivering on the story? It's not just a fairy tale. You've got to come up with that revenues you told me you could get. So to me, a good founder maintains that balance of telling a big enough story to attract investment interest but not telling so big a story that they end up not being able to deliver on it and crashes and burns. And as Uber and Lyft played out in the middle of the last decade, I kind of illustrated the difference between the two companies was Uber was big. They were going to be all things to all people. They're going to conquer the world. Lyft, on the other hand, pretty early in the process said, we're going to be a car service company primarily in the U.S., and Lyft, you know, to be quite honest, Lyft had an easier job than delivering on its promises than Uber had. Until Dara Koshrowski came along, Uber was just, you know, a bunch of writers. You know, they could add the writers very easily, but a company without a business model to actually make money. So I think that by telling too big a story, founders who want to build businesses are going to trap themselves. That said, though, if you're a founder that wants to extract the most money from a VC and flip it over to another VC for a higher price, and your interest is not in building businesses, but in getting rich, really, no, then you're going to tell the biggest, and those TAMs that you talk about, almost laughably bad. I mean, their TAM was $3 trillion, $2 trillion from hotels, $1.2 trillion from experiences. $2 trillion from hotels is already three times the size of the entire hotel market now. That's a really, really big story. 
And then on top of that, you added 1.2 trillion in experiences. This is what my host offering to take me to the San Diego Zoo and charging me a 20% upcharge for doing it. Why would I do that? So I think that we've encouraged almost a generation of companies now to tell the biggest story they can. That's what VCs tell them. I mean, what was it that, and I'm glad you brought up Adam Newman. What was it that Master Son told him, which is, I think he was talking in millions and Master Son said, no, no, talk billions. Now that kind of captures the mindset, which is add an extra zero, add two zeros, add three zeros, and don't even ask the question of whether it's plausible or probable, because the more zeros you have there, the higher the pricing will be. You know, just a 15 minute tour and a, and a quick story. So that that's a what happens when arrogant people with big egos get along with each other, right? Not every, either both sides think they're absolutely right. So they like each other. Then they say, well, what can go wrong here? And of course, you know, WeWork was, should remain one of those cautionary tales of what happens when arrogance overrides good sense. And Theranos is another story that is, I think, uh, wowed so many people. I, I recently read the book about how George Schultz's grandson uncovered the fraud and brought it to the attention of his grandfather and his grandfather just refused to believe it. He was so mesmerized by the story. And I think the, here again, the pedigree of the first people who buy into your story can make a huge difference mm -hmm. in how quickly the story spreads. The fact that Ted Draper was one of the first people to invest in, in Theranos, kind of a trick, because VCs are sheep like everybody else. They're mm -hmm. not doing their due diligence. They look to see who else is jumping in. And if those people are smart, their assumption is they must know something that I don't. I mean, that's exactly how I would explain we were pumping up its price is once SoftBank and Masterson got in, the conventional wisdom until WeWork fell apart, was SoftBank is run by the most brilliant investor of all time. I mean, at least that's where he anointed himself. And if they think something is good, it must be good. And other VCs jump on the bandwagon. So I think with Theranos, you had that. And you had, I think, also a fair amount of fraud which is, I think, the question is, why wasn't anybody asking questions? In fact, when I present Theranos in my class, I said, if you're investing in a blood testing company, would you ask the question, does your blood test work? <laughs> and of course, everybody in the class says, of course we would. And then I said, let's assume that the person who's created this blood testing company tells you that other people already know that it works. And then, by the way, she's changing the way the world's, I mean, she's going to solve the world's health crises. This is, I think, one of the more worrying parts of stories when founders claim they're going to solve some of the world's problems with their company. At which point you get afraid to ask the tough questions because you feel like the hunter who shot Bambi. Here is Elizabeth Holmes talking about solving the health problems of poor people in Africa. And, and I'm asking this question about does your blood test work? I feel like such a hero. <laughs> I'm always wary of people who wrap themselves in this. I'm saving society while I'm building this company because it basically makes pushing back so much more difficult. It's one reason I've been a skeptic on ESG, which I think is one of the most overhyped, oversold concepts I've seen in business over the last 40 years. But that band, I mean, that train's left the station. Everybody's on the train. And my worry is that companies will wrap themselves in ESG and use it as armor against people mm -hmm. asking questions about, hey, why were your margins down last year? Right now, the CEO is going to say, how dare you ask me about margins? I'm doing good for society. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, an extremely dangerous place to be when business people can hide behind the shield of mm -hmm. 
what I'm doing is for the good of society. Don't ask me any tough questions about how I'm running the business. Yeah. So I think part of this narrative is not just about, you know, how do you become a good storyteller, but really how do you become a good critic, right? It's how do you become someone who's capable of uh, evaluating the stories? I know in, 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 in behavioral finance, right, which I teach, there's definitely uh, a strain of skepticism. You have to be very, very skeptical of Pied Piper storytelling at the wholesale level. You know, we see it at the retail level. These meme stocks gyrate due to the proliferation of stories on the internet. This must have been a very interesting thing for you to observe. Yeah, you know what? I don't get, you know, a lot of people get frustrated. They start to wag fingers. To me, it's just, I, my reaction is give me the popcorn. This is how markets have always behaved. Mm -hmm. This is not new. This too shall pass. You probably heard the story of, I think it was David Einhorn who said a day before yesterday about this company called Hometown International, stock I'd never heard of. And the reason is it's actually a deli, one deli in New Jersey. It's a small deli in some remote part of New Jersey that somehow, don't ask me how, got incorporated and publicly traded as a company. It's a deli with revenues of less than 50,000. So it's like a little restaurant that people come into with a market cap of 100 million. <laughs> and you say, how does that happen? And it, you know, part of it is it's got a name that doesn't give it away. If, you, if I called it Plainsboro Delhi, there's no way you're pushing the market cap to 100 million because you're saying you're a Delhi. Why would I push the price? By calling themselves Hometown International, first the international is kind of a, you know, is where it, are you internationally? You should put blockchain right? in there. You should put blockchain. Mean, that's only the next part, right? You name <laughs> My guess is it's the name is probably similar to the name of some other mm -hmm. company yeah. because hometown is a pretty common name. And this would be a classic behavioral case study to examine of what happens when people start to get really lazy. And we're in a phase of the market where people, everything they touch seems to turn to gold. Look at this, at least with Bitcoin, people are trying to make excuses for why you should be pushing the price up, that one day it would be a currency that everybody would use. But how do you explain this doggy coin or doji coin? Dogecoin, yeah, dogecoin. No, with dogecoin, because those people don't even, you know, there's no even, not even a pretense that this is going to no, be it's a, a cryptocurrency. It's created as a joke. Use. This is just pure joke that every time Elon Musk tweets out doubles in price and it's, but you can see people are playing it as, mm -hmm. hey, what does it matter if it's a joke? If I can buy it 150 and sell it at two, I make a 33% return. We're at that stage in this game where people are trading on pretty much everything. Same thing with NFTs. There's nothing about an NFT that leads me to believe that it will have enduring value. This isn't a Picasso. This isn't a collectible of lasting value. I'm not even sure it's got the lasting value of a Beanie Baby, to be quite honest. But in this market where people are in a hurry to make money, this too becomes a vehicle you can use to get there. Of course, if, if you ignore the things that made these so successful, at least in the short run, you do so at your peril. Because if you do have a legitimate product and a legitimate company and a legitimate value proposition, but you don't know how to communicate that value, then you'll have a difficult time raising capital, finding customers and attracting employees. Yeah, I agree. What's your 10-bagger? And this guy says, look, there's no 10-bagger. I make Parts for automobiles that I've done for 15 years, I make a lot of money on them, but there's really no market I can go to that. But if all you had to tell them, look, I'm going to create a SPAC within the company and buy some unnamed company in the future, he'd probably would. And that, I think, is the reason this phenomenon of SPACs ties into mm -hmm. very much what we're talking about today, which is a, you're giving your money to a person and trusting that person to buy a company 
a year and a half or two years from now at the right price for you while pocketing 20% of the proceeds. We've reached a point in this market where we're trusting people to do things with our money and just turning it over. So I wonder if there's different personalities. I know I spent some time with shorts uh, a while back. And one thing that struck me about the, the folks who are shorts is like, these are the kind of people who, you know, they stopped believing in Santa Claus when they were like three. Not the kind of people you want to go to dinner with, right? <laughs> I mean, they're downers, right? right. So, but uh, you know, and, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're, they're the people who are, who are constantly asking questions. And mm-hmm. built into this is a healthy dose of cynicism about the end game and pretty much everything. They mm-hmm. believe the worst possible motives for every action. And mm-hmm. guess what? Who can blame them? Because often the worst possible motives seem to be the one that best fits. And so I'm wondering if there are different cultures of, you know, different communities that find different stories compelling. I think over the last 20 years, although regardless of what the current state is, for the last 20 years, I think, you know, folks on Wall Street have systematically uh, underestimated the Googles and and the Amazons and, and the Facebooks and the Tesla and so forth. Whereas people in San Francisco, they have a very different view. If you're in New York, you're probably still taking yellow cabs. And if you're in San Francisco, you'd never think of taking a yellow cab. And so the stories have a different level of credibility uh, depending on you know where you are. And I hate to do this, but it, it kind of like brings back the Peter Lynch, you know, approach to investing. If you happen to be exposed to the information that, that's relevant, then you find that the stories make sense to you. And I think that's true. I think by part of the reason I think Wall Street has had trouble with these stories is they're disruptive stories. They're stories of the status quo is being shaken up. I mean, I think in the last 20 years, we've seen more disruption of established businesses across the board than we've ever seen before on a facility. But I think this, the last two decades, every sector has seen disruption. It's retail, it's automobiles. I mean, you go down the list, every single sector has seen disruption. And the nature of disruption is such that if you're stuck with the status quo, it's not even that you're not aware that things are going on, but you're too much vested in the status quo. It becomes more difficult for you to even believe stories about disruption. Because if you believe in those stories, it should really shake your faith in whatever you're doing Mm -hmm. and invested in right now. So part of Wall Street's problem is Wall Street makes its money primarily from the status quo. Silicon Valley in the last 20 years has made its money from shaking up the status quo. Now, clearly, in the 20 years, Silicon Valley has won this fight. But it's not going to win this fight. I think it was just a culmination, a coming together of multiple factors that made it a particularly rich environment for Silicon Valley. Because I think history is that the establishment wins more often than not. It's very difficult for disruptors to break through. And I think for the last 20 years, disruptors have been able to break through partly, and I think 2008 played a big role in this, partly because people have lost faith in the establishment. Right, people, and especially younger people, I mean, people under the age of 35 or 40 don't trust central bank, they don't trust the government, they don't, in a sense, they don't trust anybody. And disruptors feed on that lack of trust. My guess is if this were 1998 or 2002, Tesla would not have taken off the way it did post 2008. So some of this is just what's happened in society helped the disruptors because it made the status quo less defensible. But for the last 20 years, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I know, and this is something I've been, I know I've been writing about in value investing, old time value investing, and it's my pet peeve, which is old time value investors. 
they follow the Buffett rule book, which is if you don't understand something, don't invest in it. That's a recipe for not investing in things or investing in fewer and fewer things as you get older. Yeah. Let's face it, as you get older, there are fewer and fewer things you truly understand. I don't understand the music that's around me. I may not understand the technology, but if I say, look, I will not invest in things I don't understand, I'm going to be investing in Coca-Cola and Kraft Heinz till the cows come home. And yeah. I said with value investing, it's a failure of imagination. You've got to be willing to say, look, what I know is what I know, but that doesn't mean I have to stop learning. And I think that that Wall Street has learned that lesson now, but it's too late. The big disruptors have already succeeded. The golden age of disruption, in my view, has already happened. And I think what you're going to see over the next 10, 20 years is some of the downside of the disruption we've created. Three million people drive for Uber. They're independent contractors. They don't have, and society bears the cost of some of the you know, some of the sharing economy we've so easily built. There will be a downside to this, and we're going to see that downside as we go forward. But I think Wall Street has learned its lesson now about having to be more imaginative, but we'll see how it plays out. So I'm, I'm very interested in how people kind of get stuck in ways of thinking that are, get divorced from what's going on around them. And couple examples. I remember when I went from spending eight hours a week in a bookstore to zero hours a week in a bookstore and it happened overnight as soon as I discovered you know, Amazon. And I remember uh, shortly thereafter when Amazon went public, Barron's had a front page article that said, Barnes and Noble's going to crush Amazon and it, it won't exist anymore, right? And you know, and I remember, uh, I remember when the banks were all using VAR models. I was teaching in the financial engineering program here, and and you know, it's like twelve month VAR. And you know, have we forgotten <laughs> about the previous, you know, few decades? Is the problem that that people don't? And in some of my other interviews with strategy folks, it's always like you know, you got to get out of the building, you got to stress test your beliefs, you got to listen to people on on the margins and on the edges so is it really a, to get back to our main theme here is it that you need to kind of go out and get better data or is it that you have to expose yourself to alternative narratives i mean i thought there were only seven kinds of stories hasn't everybody heard all of them before i mean what what kind of new stories do we need to hear you're not hearing stories when you talk to people you're hearing about their experiences so when i talk to my son about taking uber and why he took Uber rather than a cab, I learned about why the fact that he can call the car from a phone, which is right now, for, rather than hail it on the street. The fact that you don't have to have cash in your pocket at midnight coming out of a bar. Now, things which I don't, no, I don't go to bars, I don't, no, I don't take taxis or car service companies for the most part. So for me, the fact that we have access to data and all these great analytical tools has meant that most of us for what research has boiled down to is sitting in front of our computers and creating more tables, more Excel spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. So I think that's gotten in the way of talking to people. I think the best research is actually talking and listening to people. And that's something we don't do very much anymore. I mean, I, I remember when Peloton went public, the equity research analysts uh, on CNBC who came on to say who wanted to you know buy Peloton. This was pre-COVID with the, with their old story of selling you know twenty five hundred. He said everybody in my building has a Peloton, and I said I don't know which building you live in, but you probably need to get out of that building and walk about twelve blocks south on New York City, or preferably about fifty blocks north on New York City, and you're going to see that everybody doesn't have a Peloton. You can't afford to pay forty dollars a month 
No, if you're everybody. So I think part of it is we tend to get into our safe zones and we don't want to leave them. And it goes again to what the 20th century created. It creates zones of people who think alike, who had the same training, do the same things. Now, I remember when I was, and it was about five years ago, and look at Brunelleschi's dome, that amazing dome that dominates the city. I actually wrote a blog post about it after I wrote, came back because the dome was built by a guy who had absolutely no you know, architectural ex experience, engineering experience. He was an artist who carved doors. But he taught himself enough by talking to people who knew that he built the greatest dome known to mankind at that point in time. We need more Brunelleschis, more as a reason, I guess we call them Renaissance men or Renaissance people, if you want to make it less sexist, is people who are willing to learn other disciplines. I mean, I don't know whether you've read this story about the fox and the hedgehog, I think mm -hmm. is the title of the book. It's about expert forecasts versus generalist forecasts and how much better generalist forecasts are people who know a lot of things about a lot of different things tend to be better forecasters than people who know a huge amount about one thing. Now, I, and you've seen this play out even with COVID. The best forecasters about COVID have often not been the scientists who might be focused just on COVID. It's people who understand enough statistics, enough medicine, enough behavioral issues, psychology to be able to put them all together to come up with these forecasts. And I think we need to kind of rediscover our multidisciplinary roots and emphasize. So I, you know, I've opened up my old statistics books a lot more in the last 20 years, simply because I, you know, a lot of the things you talked about where people make terrible mistakes, you're just violating basic statistics. Well, that takes us back to where we started, which is around education. Statistics is now our go-to for critical thinking, it seems. We don't teach critical thinking anymore as a discipline or the humanities, which used to be kind of where we would learn critical thinking or maybe in the social sciences. And so statistics, here at Berkeley, we've created a whole new school, which uh, I think is almost every undergraduate's going to have to take some kind of statistics or data science class. But the danger I see there is that these classes simply become classes where people learn the techniques and the methods without that interpretive layer that helps you to understand the nuance, the context, the biases, the faulty inference, and, and all the other things, the qualitative aspects of working with data. The statistics without context is not statistics, in my view. You know, I, I actually, said, you know, my evaluation class, I would say is about 20% statistics, mm -hmm. but it's statistics in context. When we talk about pricing, we talk about why PE ratios vary across companies or whether growth matters. I use statistics as a tool to answer the question. And then we talk about the limits of what statistics can do and where intuition is to take over. But I think you're right. If you just force people to take a statistics class, it's going to be like every other required class. You take it, then you forget about it. Then you, three months later, six months later, you make all the mistakes mm -hmm. they told you not to make. I think we need to be multidisciplinary in, in every one of our classes. So when I teach my evaluation class, I have a lot of psychology in there. I have a lot of storytelling. I have a lot of strategy. I have a lot of statistics because they're all part of what I'm trying to convey when I do evaluation. And I you know, hope and pray it sticks better because it's always in context. I mean, once you've gone through evaluation of Tesla multiple times and you go through the process, you don't need to take you know, a psychology class on herd behavior or, you know, it's in there. You can see it happen in front of you and it's in context. You remember that from ha happening. 
So I think when I talk about people becoming multidisciplinary, I'm not talking about them taking classes in each discipline mm -hmm. because we've tried to do that and it doesn't work. But actually working on making every one of our classes multidisciplinary, which is close the door and say, that strategy, go talk in your strategy mm -hmm. class about that if somebody become, brings up a strategic issue or ESG. We have a class on corporate social responsibility. But to me, ESG is a great topic to talk about in the context of valuation. When is being good, good for you in terms of increasing value? And when is it going to cost you money? So everything is encouraged. And by doing that, I think we, you know, I hope to create people who can come out with a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for all the disciplines that ultimately end up going into business. Yeah, I remember I was teaching statistics a couple of years back, a data and decisions class. And after I went through and talked about how you shouldn't rely on anecdote, you should rely on data. I then told a story about someone who, who relied on anecdote and, and got into trouble. And, and one of the students raised his hand and said, wait, you just used an anecdote <laughs> to illustrate the danger of using anecdotes. And I said, well, that's, that's exactly right, because that's the only way you're going to remember it. So I hope you're I hope you're going to write a book on ESG because that'll be another opportunity for me to, to I, interview. I, I, that's where it's headed because I think that I wrote a paper on ESG with Brad Cornell a few months ago that essentially laid out the skeptical side. And in fact, an ESG book has to have theology in there because you start with the question of what is goodness. And already we're in trouble, right? Because this notion that a service can tell me who's good and who's bad. And maybe the place to look is the Catholic Church. Hasn't they? they have 2,000 years of experience in this. How well have they done it? Or where are they screwed up? Maybe, you know, every time we think we invent something new in business or in finance, let's face it, this has been done before by other people who've had hundreds of years of experience screwing up on this. Why are we acting like this is the first time we do these things? There's going to be at least a chapter in the book on what is goodness? and why it's going to be so difficult getting an acceptance on goodness and badness. Because without that acceptance, the rest of it becomes moot. Because if I can't tell what's good and bad, then how the heck do I decide whether being good is going to increase value or decrease value? So it's, uh, and it's also my problem with ESG is the problem I often have with business concepts that are oversold. It's cake for everybody, calories for no one. So companies adopting ESG become more valuable, investors investing in ESG get richer, society benefits, who can fight against this? This is going to be great for everybody. And the realize, the recognition has to come that you know, somebody has to end up bearing or paying a price here. Who is it going to be? And that, I think, without being honest about it, my worry is that ESG is going to become very much what corporate governance has become over the last 20 years, which is a checkbox approach to, hey, if you do all of this, you have a high corporate governance score. Big deal. You still are not accountable to shareholders. You still have terrible governance, but you score high. And I think ESG is embarking on that same road to checkbox ESG. But companies are going to do all the right things, say all the right things, but they're not going to do anything that makes a difference. And presumably DEI just a, is an extension of that. DEI, checkbox. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extension of that. Yeah. No one can ever accuse you of cake without calories. I think these books have cake and calories. Okay. So definitely uh, check them out. Narrative and numbers. Of course, the old uh, valuation book, strategic risk taking, and a whole bunch more, which I'll put up on, on the website. Really appreciate you joining me today and uh, hope everything's uh, nice down there in, in La Jolla. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.